0: Hello there, and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes, and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. In this episode, we've finally reached the Battle of Mansikurd. We've been building up to this over the last few episodes because it was such a significant battle, and one that changed the entire status quo in the medieval world, and was, I think, the original cause of the First Crusade. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019 and is available at Amazon and most retailers. So let's go. Hope you enjoy it. Romanus wanted to strike against Alp Arslan as soon as possible, but he was still hoping that Tracaniotes would return, completely unaware that he was already hundreds of miles away, fleeing in the opposite direction. Messengers sent to find him returned empty-handed. He then took the most momentous decision of his reign. He gave orders to prepare for battle the next day. But just at that moment, he received an unexpected message. At the gates of the Byzantine camp, there appeared a Seljuk delegation from Al-Paslan asking for an audience. The delegation was led by one of the caliph of Baghdad's principal dignitaries, al-Mulaban, who was already well known to the Byzantines. Romanus allowed the delegation to enter the camp, giving them an imperial cross as their passport for safe passage. When they proposed a truce, Romanus was initially elated. Not surprisingly, there was a sense of triumph on the Byzantine side that the Seljuks were seeking peace. It provides a revealing insight into Alparslan's mind. While there was probably some gamesmanship on his part, since a truce would give him time to bring up more troops, it is also testimony to his respect for Romanus and his army. Nevertheless, Romanus and his Anatolian supporters decided that it was a trick and that the sultan was stalling for time, In the end, he behaved haughtily, forcing the Arabs to prostrate themselves in his presence, a ritual called proskinesis. He demanded that the Turks abandon their camp and retreat further away before he would even consider discussing a truce. Dismayed, the peace envoys departed. On the next day, the 26th of August 1071, before the Seljuks could even respond to Romanus' request, he ordered the army to prepare for battle in the early morning. The Turks watched the Byzantine army assemble in the dusty plain outside Manzikert. They were impressed by the sight of the disciplined ranks of Cappadocian and Anatolian soldiers, so much so that Ataliates says, they, the Turks, were inclined to flight when they saw the Roman phalanxes all drawn up in ordered disciplined battle array, end of quote. The Arab sources say the same, although written decades after the event, and with no eyewitness information, they claim that Al-Paslam was preparing to die in battle. He dressed in white so that his garb might serve as his shroud, and he made his entourage swear to recognise his son Malik Shah as his heir should he die in battle. Then, according to the Arab chroniclers, he made an impassioned speech to his army, quote, No matter how few we may be, and no matter how great in numbers the Romans may be, I shall fling myself upon the enemy at this hour when the Muslims are praying for us. Either I shall be victorious and fulfil my goal, or I shall be a martyr and enter paradise. Those who desire to follow me come with me. Those who wish to go back may do so freely. There is here no sultan commanding and no soldier being commanded, for I am today only one of you. End of quote. While this passage was written a century after the battle and uses almost absurd poetic hyperbole, there's no doubt that. Alpazlan's position was on the line. Now was his greatest test. Defeat by the Byzantines would jeopardise his authority over the Turkmen. The whole Seljuk empire could very easily unravel if Romanus won a victory. These thoughts must have dominated his mind as he watched the Byzantines advance in the morning sun the bulk of the Seljuk army were the turkmen although historians commonly refer to ten thousand kurdish cavalry joining al-paslam before manzikert this is based on flimsy evidence there may well have been some kurdish troops but the bulk of the Seljuk army would have been the turkmen living along the Armenian border with Byzantium. They have been the core of most Seljuk armies in the past and remain so at Manzikert, as attested to by Italiates' numerous references to the Turkish cavalry in the battle. There is no source that provides any reliable indication of the size of the Seljuk army, but it seems reasonable to assume that it was a substantial force, perhaps 30,000 strong. Alpazlan appointed one of his most trusted generals, a eunuch called Tarangis, to set about organising the Turkmen into a crescent formation, facing the Byzantines so that they could harry them with arrows and lure them into making charges, similar to the disastrous foray that Nikephorus Basilakes had made two days earlier. However, he knew that victory could only be achieved if the Seljuks joined battle with the Byzantines, and this was far too risky unless an opportunity presented itself. Meanwhile, the Byzantines advanced in a battle order that certainly wasn't typical of the formations favoured by military manuals. These would have had infantry in the centre and cavalry on the wings, but such a conventional approach was totally impractical against the hit-and-run tactics of the Seljuks. Romanus knew this only too well, since he was highly experienced at fighting steppe nomads, and fully expected them to try to avoid a normal pitched battle. Therefore, he divided his army into four separate and self-sufficient battle groups, each containing a mix of infantry, heavy cavalry, archers and pecheneg and ogres auxiliaries. As already discussed, no source mentions the Varangians and Normans being present at the battle, and it seems likely that they had been sent with Trichiniotes to Cleat. The advantage of Romanus' battle plan was the flexibility given to each battle group, allowing them to act independently of each other and to respond to the Turkish hit-and-run tactics in the most appropriate way. However, there was one major disadvantage. By giving such independence to the battle group commanders, Romanus lost much of his own control over the army. Successful coordination required good communication between battle groups and a strong unity of purpose. The most effective way to achieve this would have been to have his most ardent supporters in charge of each of the battle groups. But this was where Romanus made an uncharacteristic mistake. He put Andronicus Ducas in command of the rearguard with a mixed force of mercenaries and Byzantine troops. It remains a mystery why Romanus gave such a senior command to Andronicus, whose father he had exiled. Presumably he was trying to appease his critics, by appearing lenient towards the Dukai. It is also possible that he had some personal respect for Andronicus, who was, by all accounts, a dashing and brave young soldier. No doubt he also thought that the rearguard was the place where Andronicus could do least harm. He would soon learn that this was a mistake." Romanus himself took personal command of the centre, which was almost certainly the powerhouse of the army, filled with the elite Cappadocian regiments, as alluded to by Ataliates. On the right wing, he put one of his closest supporters, Theodore Aliates, another Cappadocian and fanatically loyal to Romanus. On the left wing was the Western army, led by its commander, Nicephorus Briennius. Romanus was rightly confident that the Western army would be loyal to him since he'd been one of their most popular generals before he became emperor, and they had sworn an oath of loyalty to him. However, their commander, Briennius, although not a traitor, was certainly not one of his keenest supporters. Although Byzantine casualties may have been quite high in Basilarchus' disastrous cavalry charge two days before, Romanus's army was still clearly a large and powerful force, perhaps up to 30,000 strong in total. Choking in the dust kicked up by the huge numbers of horses' hooves, which is emphasised by the Arab sources, the battle groups of the Byzantine army started to march across the plain towards the Seljuk camp some five miles away the two main Byzantine accounts of the battle present different pictures. Ataliates says the Turks melted away, quote, inclined to flight when they saw the Roman phalanxes all drawn up in ordered disciplined battle array, end quote. While Briennius Jr. says that the Seljuk general Tarangi's "...divided his army into several groups, set traps and organised ambushes, and ordered his men to surround the Byzantines and riddle them with arrows. The Byzantines, seeing their cavalry under attack, were obliged to follow it, which they did, while the enemy pretended to flee. But, falling victim to the traps and ambuscades, they suffered great losses." The truth probably lies somewhere between the two accounts. Ataliates wasn't actually on the battlefield himself since he'd remained behind in the the Byzantine camp at Mansikirt as a non-combatant. Briennius's grandfather was, of course, commanding the left wing of the army and would have known exactly what happened and might well have left some records. Therefore, it's probably correct that Turkish resistance was stronger than Ataliates makes out, with a good deal of skirmishing as the Byzantines advanced. It seems that Romanus’s advance guard may have captured a Seljuk forward position, but as he led the armies across several miles of scrubland towards the main Seljuk camp, the Seljuk's used typical steppe nomad battle tactics and skillfully withdrew without committing to battle. Ataliates says that Romanus pursued the Turks until the evening, when he became worried that they might circle round and try to attack the Byzantine camp, which was poorly defended, quote, stripped bare of soldiers including foot sentries. End of quote. Therefore he halted the centre and ordered the signal to be given to those on the wings to turn around and head back to camp. Romanus must certainly have felt frustrated that he hadn't brought Alp Arslan to a pitch battle, but he had at least won a victory of sorts by forcing the Seljuks to retreat several miles. It was then that things went disastrously wrong for Romanus. In the Byzantine army, the order to return to camp was given by reversing the imperial battle standards. The problem was that this signal could be open to misinterpretation. On this occasion, it seems that the soldiers on both wings weren't completely sure why the banners in the centre had been reversed. This facilitated the second act of treachery. Ateliartes has left us with a full description of what happened, which was so important that it is worth quoting in full. Quote, he, Romanus, ordered the imperial banner to be turned around as a signal for the troops to return to camp. But when those soldiers who were far from the main body saw the imperial banner being turned around, they thought that the emperor had fallen in defeat. Many relate that one of those who was waiting for a chance to get at him, a cousin of the emperor's stepson Michael, this refers to Andronicus Ducas, who had previously plotted against him, spread this report among the soldiers. He, again this refers to Andronicus, quickly got his men together, that is the rearguard, for the emperor with his good heart had entrusted a large contingent to this man's command and fled back to the camp. The nearest units followed his example, and one by one they turned to flight without a fight, and others followed after them. When the emperor saw this irrational flight and desertion he took a stand with his own men trying in the usual way to check the flight of his men but nobody was listening to him End of quote. "Andronicus's treachery created a moment of confusion that was exactly what Alp Arslan had been hoping for. The Seljuks were the masters of opportunism in warfare. Their battle tactics could only be successful if they took advantage of disarray whenever it occurred. Their most important victory to date had been achieved in just this way at the Battle of Dandankan in 1040, when the Ghaznavid army had been quarrelling over the use of a well when they attacked it. The situation at Manzikert now presented a very similar opportunity. Alp Arslan ordered an all-out attack. The mass of Selju cavalry facing the Byzantine stopped shooting arrows, drew their sabres and maces, and charged into battle. Romanus had got the pitch battle he wanted, but with the bulk of his army fleeing the result was chaos. The situation on the battlefield rapidly turned against the Byzantines. The right wing, led by Aliates, was subjected to a brutal Seljuk assault and started to break up. The centre, under Romanus's command, was holding firm but becoming isolated from the wings. Andronicus' rearguard was simply fleeing from the battlefield as fast as it could. The Western army on the left wing, and led by Briennius, was holding its own against the Turkish onslaught as it retreated in good order. Briennius Jr. emphasises that it tried to come to the Emperor's aid, but was prevented from saving Romanus by ferocious Turkish resistance – However, his description, written 50 years after the battle, looks like an attempt to flatter his grandfather's memory, since we know that the Western army actually survived Kurt largely intact, suggesting that it didn't attempt too hard to save Romanus, and instead chose to withdraw in reasonably good order from the battlefield. We can assume that although Briennius Senior was not a downright traitor, his allegiance to Romanus was limited. When he saw that Romanus was surrounded, he decided that it was best to save his troops while he could by retreating from the battlefield. Romanus was now in a desperate position. With two of his four battle groups withdrawing from the battlefield, he and the centre were completely surrounded. Aliates' Anatolian soldiers on the right wing were the only ones that genuinely tried to rescue him. And, like Romanus, they faced the full brunt of the Turkish attack and were pushed back as they tried to link up with the emperor. Stay with us. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this... Under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Surrounded, Romanus fought like a lion. There isn't a single source, Byzantine or Muslim, pro-Romanus or anti-Romanus, which doesn't praise him as a hero. Surrounded by the Turks, he tried to make his way back towards Mansikert. The fighting wore on into the evening. Alp Arslan concentrated more and more of his soldiers on stopping Romanus from escaping. Finally, with his horse shot dead and wounded in the hand so that he was unable to hold a sword, Romanus surrendered. Back in the Byzantine camp... Panic reigned. The fleeing troops clustered outside the camp's palisade. No one knew what had actually happened. Some said that Romanus had been killed, while others said he'd defeated the Turks. Groups of retreating soldiers suddenly appeared from the battlefield. Ataliates, who was back at the base camp, says he tried to stop them retreating and ordered them to fight, but even groups of Romanus's favourite Cappadocian soldiers started to run away. Then Ataliates says that a large group of Byzantine cavalry suddenly appeared. Maybe these were the detachments of the Western army that was withdrawing in reasonably good order saying that they didn't know whether the Emperor was dead or alive. After that, the Turks arrived. Then it was everyone for himself as the troops abandoned the camp. Ataliates sums it up vividly. It was like an earthquake, with howling, grief, sudden fear, clouds of dust, and finally hordes of Turks riding all around us, The enemy chased us, killing some, capturing some, and trampling others underfoot. The broken right wing of the army, commanded by Aliates, fled in disorder, pursued by the Turks. Even some of the Cappadocian soldiers in the centre appeared to have abandoned the emperor. Quote, Finally, many of the Cappadocians who were with the Emperor, one group after another began to desert. End of quote. Meanwhile, the traitor Andronicus was speeding back to Constantinople as fast as his horse would carry him, not having even drawn a sword. Tricanniotes, the other traitor, was already hundreds of miles to the west, his forces of Varangians and Normans intact. The Western army under Nicephorus Briennius was also retreating, no doubt after suffering some casualties, but still largely in one piece. Back on the battlefield, Romanus and his remaining Cappadocians fought on. They must have made a miserable sight, with corpses littering the ground, men screaming in agony from their wounds, horses neighing in their death throes, and blood soaking the ground. We will never know the real truth of what really happened, but by nightfall, the last survivors of the Byzantine centre surrendered. Romanus's surrender is steeped in Islamic myth. Most medieval Muslim chroniclers delight in telling a tale that became legendary across Islam, that a lowly slave soldier, a ghulam, took Romanus prisoner. Many versions of the story exist and although the details vary, they all agree that as this simple soldier was about to kill Romanus, he suddenly realised who he was. Some say the Ghulam spoke Greek and Romanus told him, quote, hold your sword for I am the emperor of the Romans. Others say that the Ghulam saw his gilded armour and realised that he was a nobleman. Whatever the details given in the story, the message is always the same. Islam humbles the proud. Aside from the symbolism that Arslan's victory was to acquire in later years, there was one incontrovertible truth at the time. Romanus's plans to save Byzantium had been shattered. The new eastern army that he had painstakingly created over the last three years had been completely routed and largely destroyed. He himself was a prisoner of the Seljuk Sultan and the first Byzantine emperor to be taken prisoner for nearly three centuries. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be amazing to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you can. Thank you so much. In the next episode, we'll move on to what happened to Byzantium after the Battle of Mancicurt. And without giving too much away, it'll be called the Fall of Byzantium.